Okay, everyone, why don't we stand and read Revelation 17 and 18. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold, precious stones, and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called the chosen and faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues, and the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city, which reigns over the great kings of the earth. Chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and destitute bird, detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The king of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given, 
pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for the mighty is the Lord, God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand up far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, and carriages, and bodies and souls of men. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished never to be recovered. The merchants the merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship and sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe, O great city, where all had ships on the sea, became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God said, judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of the harpists and the musicians, flute players and trumpets will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men, but your magic spell all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints, and of all had been killed on the earth. Amen. Maybe see you. Just going to say a quick prayer here. I was reading John. And this is a powerful, powerful message from the Lord. It says, when, he was, uh, when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. And the Jews were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? And so Jesus answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but it's him who sent me. Then he said, he who speaks for himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there's no unrighteousness in them. 
So Lord, my prayer this morning is that uh, my teaching is not my own, that it comes from you, and that I do not seek my own glory, but seek yours, so that the church may be um, edified, strengthened, and encouraged, even convicted, if that is your will, for where people are at today. You know the hearts of every one of us, and so we trust your spirit uh, fully with what you're going to do this morning. Amen. Well, welcome to some of the most difficult chapters in Revelation to understand. It's places like this in the Revelation that make us as readers kind of want to close the book on it and just sort of give up. Who can possibly understand this stuff? It makes absolutely no sense to me. I'm going to choose another letter in my devotions to read in my studies. Well, my goal today through the power of the Holy Spirit is to try to make John's complicated apocalyptic language simple so that you can see the importance and relevance of what he was saying today. So let's remember where we came from last week. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at the third and final set of series of judgments in the letter. There are seven judgments in, in the seals. There are seven judgments in the trumpets. And last week was seven judgments in the bowls. The bowls represented the finality of God's wrath to be poured out against the world for rejecting him and mistreating his people. Chapters 17, 18, and the first half of 19 are chapters in which John continues judgment from the global universal scale to more localized and specific. So what he does in chapter 17 is he introduces us to two major players, two major players. There's this woman who's betrayed as a seductive prostitute, this great harlot. And on the other side, or actually in congruency with this, we have another character, this beast, who is she is seen riding on. So let's make this simple. Let's make this simple. The great harlot, this woman, is seen as, verse 1, is sitting on many waters. We see that the kings of the earth are committing acts of immorality with her. And in verse 2, again, we see that those on the earth are drunk on her immorality. So what we learn from the first, uh, and actually, importantly, on sitting on many waters, that's defined in verse 15 for you. Look in your Bibles at verse 15. It says, And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So the many waters is to represent this sort of like, um, yeah, just what it says, like many tongues, many ethnic identities, and so on and so forth. People from different backgrounds, ethnic identities. So we have this picture then in verse 1 and 2 of this woman's pervasive influence, her pervasive influence on many peoples, many tribes, and many tongues. From the, the nobility, from the kings of the earth, to the commoner, those who are just drunk in her immorality. So again, we see that the woman's influence is far-reaching, it's universal, and the world's intoxicated by her. We also see in verse 4 that she's clothed in luxury. Clothed in luxury, we see her having like sort of scarlet and purple clothing and many jewels and precious uh, gems and so on. The key from verse 4 then is, this, is a picture of her affluence. This woman is, is rich, she's wealthy, but she's also seductive. She's also seductive. You see, she may be a tart, but she's not a poor one nor an ugly one. People are intoxicated by her. 
They're in love with her. At the same time, though, John wants us to see she's not all that she's cracked up to be. She's, in verse 4, also holding a cup of full of immorality and uncleanliness, a picture of spiritual and moral corruption, a picture of moral decay, moral corruption. And she's got a name. Her name in verse 5 is the, the mother, um, the name on her forehead is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And more on that in a second, but it's a picture of pride and arrogance. In verse 6, she's drunk with the blood of the saints and the witnesses of Jesus. So what we see is this woman is the persecutor of followers of the Lamb. There, this woman is after God's people. And finally, and importantly, most importantly, I think, will be that she's riding on a beast. She's riding the beast in verse 3. So she's sitting on this beastly image. So who is she? Well, John does not name her, oh, John does name her, calling her Babylon. But are we to expect that this is the actual name that he, of this entity, this woman? Well, I would say this from the text, three clues tell us that he's pointing to the city of Rome. Three clues within the text, when he says the word Babylon, he wants you to understand that's the city of Rome. Verse 18 is the summary of the, his comments on Babylon. He says, the woman whom you saw is the great city, which reigns over the kings of the earth. Who's the great city in, Rome, in uh, John's day? Rome. Another substantiation for it being Rome is verse 9. Is verse 9 of 17. It says that here is the mixed... Uh, Here's the mind who has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So she's sitting by many waters, but she's also sitting on seven mountains. Well, it's interesting. Every commentary I read said that they have historical sources to say that Rome was located on seven hills. The Greek word for mountain used in Revelation can be used of the same word as hill and other places in Scripture. Now, what's cool is that Ben Witherington, professor at Asbury Seminary, said this. They found a coin uh, back to Vespapian's day, one of the Roman emperors, with a coin from the Roman emperor with seven hills on the picture of one of the coins. An archaeological dig found this coin. Another substantiation why this is Rome is actually the mention of the word Babylon. You see, in 1 Peter 5.13, John or Peter is writing to the churches of modern day Turkey, Asia Minor, and he makes this declaration She who is in Babylon greets you, sends you their greetings. In the, in the New Testament language, the apostles and the teachers are already using Babylon as a, as a code word for Rome. So, who is the beast? Who is the beast? Well, in verse 3, the beast has blasphemous names, has seven heads, and ten horns. In verse 8, it was described as was, is not, and is to come. And in verse 11, is an eighth and is one of the seven. There's a temptation to go into all the details on all these things, but I won't because we could spend our entire morning talking about all these verses, and you would be like, so what? 
I don't need all those details. <laughs> but I can make this real simple in terms of who she was, because we've already seen this beast in chapter 13. In chapter 13, it's revealed as that this is the sea beast, part of Satan's unholy counterfeit trinity. Let me read 13, 1 and 2 to you. The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The same description as Revelation 17. Blasphemous names, ten horns, seven heads. We learned in Revelation 13 that the Satan, the dragon, has a counterfeit trinity. He has two beasts, a sea beast and an earth beast, and both of them work together to spread evil throughout the world and persecute God's people. This sea beast represented the political power, or the state, or the governing authorities, or it could be just a reference to the Roman Empire itself. And so here we have then John wanting us to see two things. First of all, in verse 3, if the, if the, Rome, the city of Rome is there as representing the woman we see her riding the beast she is basically uh, the power behind the throne so to speak we see the the city of rome riding on the back of the empire the city of rome riding on the back of the empire on the political power so again it's a picture of the power behind the throne and i started thinking about this application wise you know every institution whether it be from a from a from a, a, a nation to like a sort of a province or, or any other sort of smaller group has its major center or headquarters from which the trajectory of its ideology comes forth. In Canada, that's Ottawa. Ottawa sets the moral and ethical temperature for how the nation is to operate. You should see that from the last two years, <laughs> right? If you're in the United States, Washington is the trajectory from which every ideology is set. They set the spiritual and moral and ethical temperature of every place. Take it on a microcosm, we have provincial, uh, we, we, within Canada, we have provincial sort of empires, and then a city that's the capital of that. And even in other institutions, we might have a school system in which it, it, it sort of follows the trajectory of someone above them. And so we see the way this plays out in Revelation and how it plays out in our own lives. Well, that's the first picture he wants us to see. The second one is that he wants you to know that this entity, this Roman city and the empire is coming to an end. It's to be judged. Look at verse one with me. He says, come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. 18.1, fallen, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And verse 21, then a strong angel took up a stone like a millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown with violence, thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Chapter 17 is now complete. Hopefully we can understand what is going on and what John is trying to articulate to us here. So what are we to do with this? What's the big deal? Why not just close the book here and say, let's go home. I get it now. You know, Rome is riding on the back of the empire and it's setting the trajectory of the world and, and it's going to come to a demise. God's going to win. Well, there's a big deal because there's a lot I think we can learn from here. 
The first thing is simply this. We need to learn from what John's purpose in naming Rome Babylon in the first place. Why not just come out and say, Rome, 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 why call her Babylon? Why call her Babylon? Perhaps, perhaps part of it had to do with it was code, right? It's code. Imagine you're writing this letter denouncing Rome through the entire letter, and your letter gets found. <laughs> What's going to happen to you as a congregation if that letter is found? And that's, that's obvious treason against the emperor. Like, you're, you're in muddy waters there. You're toast. So perhaps it's written in code. But I would suggest that even if that's not the case, there's a more important thing that John is trying to convey. And that's when we understand what Babylon symbolizes in the Bible. We have to go back thousands of years to Genesis, in the early chapters of Genesis. Remember, the flood has come. The world is void of human life. God gives a command in Genesis 9 and 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. As time goes on, the population grows. But the population in the world says, you know what? I'm going to ignore that command. I'm not going to spread and fill the earth and have dominion over it. I want to stay local. I want all of us as one group to stay local. And so what we're going to do in defiance of God is we're going to build a city and we'll build a tower that reaches to the heavens. In other words, and this is what the key phrase was in Genesis 9, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. Isn't it interesting in the, in the cities in the world, right? <laughs> like have massive towers to say, I'm the tallest, I'm the biggest, look at me. I think of Abu Dhabi, Toronto, all of these massive towers to say, look at me, look at me. There's a competition. Let's make a name for ourselves as people. And so we have right away this picture of rebellion in Babel. Oh yeah, like this was called Babel, right? Because God confused their language to spread them. And it was called Babel, where this occurred, short for Babylon. So we see Babylon present right in the early chapters of Genesis. Later on in history, King Nebuchadnezzar, after conquering Israel, is standing in the palace. And Daniel predicts the fall of Babylon. And he says this in response to Daniel's prediction in, in 430. Is this not the great Babylon I have built by my power and for the glory of my majesty? See the language again? My, my, my. In the earlier stages of Babel, us, us, us. You see, Babel or Babylon in the Bible is a symbol of human pride. It's a symbol of defiance against God's authority. It's, it represents any society that attempts to usurp God's authority and remove him from the equation of society. They want to set up a society blatantly against God, and they strive to conduct affairs without him, remove his influence, and function independent of him. So what John's teaching us here is that Babylon is any city beyond Rome. It's Rome, but it's not limited to Rome. It's any city beyond Rome. It's, there's Babylons before Rome. There was, Babylon is Rome, and there's going to be Babylons, and there has been, and is now, Babylons to this day. The application to us is that we are living in Babylon. <laughs> We're living in Babylon. 
If John was to write a letter to, to the Genesis House Church, he would say, you are in Babylon. We have, we're living in a culture that's predominant expression is to reject God and remove him from the equation of life. So with that being said, then what else are we to learn? We should have then identify, shouldn't we, the marks of a Babylonian culture. What are the marks of a Babylonian culture? Well, the first one, it begins with pride and arrogance. The first mark is pride and arrogance. Look at 17.5 with me. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. She's called the Great, taking the place of God. 18.7 is the most powerful verse, though, to talk about her arrogance. He says, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I am the queen and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. See what Babylon does? Exalts herself, glorifies herself, has a false sense of security. She sees herself as a queen, as, a, as royalty. A queen is self-sufficient, has no lack, as opposed to a widow who's dependent. And she says, I'm never going to be dependent. I'm never going to lack. I'm never not going to need anyone to depend on. I'm totally self-sufficient. Militarily, financially, whatever. I am not going to lose out. And so, in verse 8, God says, For this reason, for this reason, your pride and arrogance, you will be judged. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a conceited spirit before a fall. So the first mark of a Babylonian culture it is marked with arrogance. It's self-exalting, self-glorifying, and pushes God out and puts yourself in his place. The second stage of Babylonian culture is immorality. This occurs six times. The word immorality occurs six times in these two chapters. I'll just tell them to you quick, and you can circle them later. Twice in Revelation 17.2, once in 17.4, twice in 18.3, and once in 18.9. Six times the word immorality is used. And here's what John's saying. When God gets pushed out, something else has to fill his place. And when holiness gets shoved to the side, sin comes in and anything goes. But the immorality here is not just used in the traditional sense of the word. He's not just saying sexual immorality. It's used figuratively to encompass many sins that are against the Lord and encompass many ways of life outside of his design. So what are these? Well, in 18.2, we see it's idolatry. 18.2, we see idolatry. He cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. This is all representing uh, false worship, worshiping the created instead of the creator. Right? And so we see this picture of idolatry 
in the worship of other gods all the way through Revelation. Remember those first seven churches, we saw idolatry as part of their worship services, going back to the temple. In idolatry, though, it does include sexual immorality because a part of the idolatrous worship of the Roman gods back then was to be with prostitutes and different things, and there was no sexual boundaries. It wasn't reserved just for the marriage bed. And so we see this in places like Pergamum and Thyatira. Another aspect of immorality was the love of money and the pursuit of affluence. In 17.4, we see her dressed as a, as a, like a, a pretty call girl who's very seductive. Lots of money, rich. And in 18.14, we get a real good description of her. It says, the fruit of you long for, sorry, the fruit you long for has gone from you and all the things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who become rich from her will stand at a distance because of her fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe to, to you, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in, such, in one hour such great wealth, such great wealth has been laid waste. We see a picture of this affluence in, in verses 11 through 14. Look at what the merchants are bringing in there. They're bringing in like this incredible stuff, like these precious metals and gems, these textiles, these wood and ivories, these spices and perfumes and food products. Rome was filthy rich. And it's not that the Bible condones wealth. Some of the wealthiest people who were strong followers of God, or, or some of the strongest followers of God were wealthy people. Abraham, Job, people like that. The problem was when the pursuit of money becomes self-serving. And when you love money more than you do God, and it's reflected in the way you live. Now, evidence that these people had gotten rich off of Rome's back is really found in 18.9. The kings of the earth who committed acts of morality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over when they see the smoke of her burning. So they're sad when they can't profit anymore off of them. We see it in the merchants in 1811. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. <laughs> and look at verses 18, or chapter 1817. We see the shipmasters and the sailors, basically the mariners, also crying out by the fact they can't make a buck anymore because Rome is being judged. Now here's what's important here. We can prove that they were self-serving with their finances and, and, their, and their wealth because look at the responses of these guys. They're not brokenhearted that God is judging sin or trying to produce repentance in people. They're, they're crying out because they're, they're, they've lost their wealth and their quality of life has gone down. There's, that's their self-interest. I no longer get to profit. I no longer get to live the luxurious lifestyle. My bank account's going down. And so I am upset with what's happening here. Another big problem besides idolatry and the love of money was the fact that they had unjust economic policies. Look in 1811, or actually... Uh, yeah, it says, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Look at what was part of their cargoes at the end of 13. Cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. 
Apparently, one third, or one quarter to one third of the population of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. The commentaries all talk in the same vein. One fourth to one third of the total empire was made up of slaves. You could buy anything in Rome, but it, became, it was at the expense of human lives. Literally, they became rich off of other people's backs. And so Rome's prosperity was tainted by evil roots. They exploited others for their own economic advantage. This is important. I've heard this just even recently. I was in a pastor's meeting and somebody was talking about their frustration with the Bible, how people often say that God supports slavery. If you look at this verse, this should tell you enough where God's heart stands in terms of that policy. The final aspect is that they were persecutors of God's people. What's the mark of a Babylonian culture? They persecute God's people. Look at 17.6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Look at verse 24 and verse 18, or chapter 18, 18.24. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Notice the cycle here. This is important. When pride comes in, God is pushed out. When God is pushed out, institutions and society become immoral. When society becomes immoral, it goes after God's people. Why? Because they're the ones living in opposition to it. So they become the targets. This is important because John is teaching us something in terms of the cycle of Babylon. This is, in this way then, it's easy to see Babylon in any city, Babylon in any society, and Babylon in any institution beyond Rome. It's the marks of every rule of power that's evil, and it's the anti-Christian empire. So what else are we to learn? The command then to come out of Babylon. The command to come out of it. Look at uh, 18, verse 4. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Look in verse 8, just a few words in. One day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. It's important we don't miss the magnitude of these verses. John has just spent an entire chapter describe or two chapters describing the immorality of Rome and how Rome is going to be judged but then he says this my people come out of her 
my people, the church, the, the believers, you need to come out of her. What does that mean? That means clearly that John had recognized that many of the believers in the first century Rome had compromised. They'd compromised. They had to come out of her because they'd basically like bought everything Rome was selling in a spiritual sense and in an economic sense. So not only was Babylon attracted to the kings, the merchants, the, the commoners, the mariners, but the church as well. And didn't we see this in the seven churches? What did Pergamum and Thyatira get accused of? They had doctrine going through the church that said, it's okay to be a follower of Jesus and go back to idolatry to the temple and worship gods outside of Jesus and to have sexual intercourse and ways outside of the marriage bed and still be good with God. What does Jesus say? I have a message for those seven churches. You're not to do that. <laughs> it doesn't work in my economy. How about Laodicea? Laodicea was one who were defined as extremely wealthy. Extremely wealthy. Again, there's nothing wrong with being rich. The problem was he called them lukewarm spiritually. Why? Because they banked on their wealth as a marker of their identity. And they were probably reflecting on how they're probably their failure to be generous and so things like that. Here's a lukewarm church because they put their hope in affluence. The churches were compromising in the first chapters, first two, two chapters two and three. And so we come at the end of the letter to say, come out of her, my people. And there's a strong warning if they don't. You see the warning in verse four? He says, come out of her so that you will not participate in the sins and receive of her plagues. What's he saying? I'm going to judge you the way I'm going to judge Rome and any Babylonian society if you compromise in these ways. This is really powerful for me because now we can see why this is a discipleship manual and not a crystal ball to the future. He's saying to the church in Rome, you will receive the plagues I've spoken about in the seals, trumpets and bowls, if you don't come out of her. That means that the judgment scenes of Revelation are not just for the future, they're for all throughout all church of history. If it didn't apply to them, they just go, what are you talking to me about, John? This only belongs to some generation two and a half thousand years from us. This doesn't apply to us. He's saying, no, Pergamum, Thyatira, Laodicea, come out of her. You've sought economic advantage. You've gone back to the temples. You're not living the life of holiness that Christ died for and called you to. Revelation, then, is as a letter of grace. It's a letter of second chance. He says, I'm not going to judge you yet. I want you to come out of her so that I don't have to. So God in his mercy actually is saying, I'm giving you time. I'm, this is your final like, warning here, guys. Like, smarten up. So again, this is amazing. It's, it's a letter of chance, a letter of opportunity. Well, how does this occur? Well, remember, Babylon's an attractive call girl. She's seductive. We know how seductive the culture is and how strong an influence it is on us and the promise of its benefits. And here's the problem for us is the more airtime we give it, the more it influences us. 
where you spend your time in terms of what you listen to, who, who influences you, well, and, yeah, for, your, for your learning and your teaching, will influence the way you live your life. And it's come into the church. It's come into the church. Think about this. What's the world's understanding of success? The world's understanding of success is this. It really depends on what school you go to, what degrees you have, what your education is, what kind of lifestyle you can live, how much money you make. Watching the NHL playoffs, it really depends on if you're bigger, faster, and stronger than everybody else. It really matters in what career you have. And where's God's emphasis? I care about your character and the emphasis on the family. Is this gaining ground in the church? You bet. One simple way, I forget what year this was, I forgot to write it down, but early on, the fertility rate amongst Christian families was about 2.7. It's dropped in the last number of years down to 2.3. It takes 2.1 children per family to, to maintain a population. We're down to 2.3. Because success is not having a big family. Success is not about having kids. It's about pursuing your career. Go for the career. Go for the career. Go for the money. And that's why, too, we're having children in Canada around 31 years old, the average age for a woman. First one, I mean, not like, you know, right? How about leadership? The world's looking for superstars. Any churches looking for superstars? <laughs> right? What is God looking for? He's looking for character. Look at the list in Timothy for eldership. It's all character-based. He he's not addicted to alcohol. He's not violent. He manages his family well. He's, got a, he's temperamental. He doesn't get angry quickly. It's all character-based. Able to teach the Word of God. Has it taken hold of the church? Absolutely. I think of Mars Hill with the fall of Mark Driscoll. I think of Hillsong United and the things that are going on there. How about sexual orientation? In the Free Methodist Church in Canada, we are having a conversation now uh, surrounding a couple different questions. The question, first question is this, can people who are in, the same, in same sex relationships become members of your church? Second question, is it possible for pastors who do not align with the present Free Methodist Church statement on same-sex relationships be able to minister in a denomination? So currently we say we wouldn't be allowed to minister in pastor if we affirm that, but now they're asking the question, is it possible for pastors who, don't, who actually think differently than the manual in the direction of the church to still minister in the congregation? Why are we asking those questions? Why are we asking them now and not 50 years ago? Because Babylon is attractive. She's a high-class call girl who's seductive. 
and she, we've given her airtime. That's why. Are we to take John's word seriously? When John wrote this book, it was in about 90 AD. Rome was enjoying security at the height of its power. Over time, Rome, the city, and the empire slowly declined in power and influence. And in 410 AD, Alaric, with his northern hordes of Goths, pillaged Rome and laid it to waste. Witherington in his commentary said this, population estimates at the time of Rome's height were one million people. Historical sources say that it dropped to 30,000. Just so you know how significant one million people was in 90 AD or around 400 AD, one million people were never matched in a city size until the 1800s when London hit that number. 1700 years, no city had ever reached a million people until London. Are we to take God's word seriously? <laughs> so what are we to learn? I'm going to ask you these in a form of questions as opposed to making statements, okay? Bruce Metzger in his commentary said this. The challenge of Revelation 17 and 18 is not to try to identify what country or world power is this Babylon of prophecy. Rather, it's to discern what is Babylonish in our own country and to learn how to disentangle ourselves from every practice that interferes with or stands opposed to the achievement of God's good and desires for all people. So therefore, here's the questions for us. Can you identify in what ways Canada is Babylonish? And what ways has it found its expression in our own country? And what ways has it found its expression in your own personal circle? Work, family, school, and the church, and so on. Just think about it. Take time this week to think about it. Another thought, Revelation 17 and 18 was written to stimulate faithfulness in first century believers and to awaken those who had or were about to be duped into seeking an easier compromise with Rome. How has God's word challenged you this morning in your own faithfulness? In what ways are you being tempted or even have compromised? Why do you think God judges compromise with the world's ways so severely? Come out of her or you'll receive the plagues of Rome. Why do you think he takes compromise so personally? Why is it so severe to him? And finally, answering the announcement of verse 20 honestly. Look at verse 20 of uh, 17. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Think about the contrast. Think of the rich, affluent lifestyle you lived in Rome if you compromised. 
God now comes and wipes that lifestyle away from you. Everything you had and worked for is gone. And he says, rejoice, because God's judgment has come and his righteousness has been spread over the land. The other option is, you can respond like the merchants and the kings and the, and the mariners. They're dying and crying and mourning because they've lost their lifestyle. They've lost everything that's important to them. This hit me like right between the eyes. If you were to say, Andrew, are you free from the love of money and your lifestyle? I'd say, yeah, I'm like, I, yeah, I am. And then I'm like, if sandstone was gone and the trailer was gone and the sequoia was gone and the holiday to Thetis Island was gone because God said, I'm going to wipe Okotoks flat because it's Babylon. Would I stand at Lions Park in the prayer meetings praising God that judgment came? Or would I be with the merchants going, oh man, this sucks. Think about that. Isn't it crazy? John is challenging us in our own Babylonian thinking. <laughs> That's why he says, come out of her. Come out of her. Think differently. Live differently. Put your hope in the right place. Put it in the Lord because he will stand victorious. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit and how he moves and works in our hearts. I know that uh, you've spoken to every person individually today in, in your own specific way, because you know the deepest parts of what we struggle with and where we uh, need encouragement. And so your, your, your spirit's like living water. It, it sort of flows and pours through the deep, deep cracks and holes in our, in our soul that, uh, that stones can't get into. And so we thank you for the way that, that moves in fluidity and and for the grace that you have towards us. And again, um, thank you for this message of hope and, and this message of encouragement and, and second chances. And so we're grateful to you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.